Ostensibly, we live in a very difficult and divided time. It doesn't take any analysis for you to determine that. It is so hard to know uh, how to say anything among uh, the world uh, or believers. It's just such a vitriolic, just a knee-jerk community that responds to all kinds of divisive things today. This passage that we're going to look at today is going to talk about the house of God, the home of God, the people of God. So we're going to look at a very practical, it is a bit theological, but a very practical text on how we understand that we have to get along in unity. This little book of Philippians is about joy no matter what our circumstance may be. Paul was in prison when he penned it, and he's writing the Philippian believers who bring him great joy as he hears reports about them. But at the same time, there's an ongoing challenge how you and I respond to circumstances, to difficulties, to problems in life. It's very applicable as if it was written today. As one of my professors off said, this is not what God would say if he was here. It is what God is saying because he is here. So we look at the little book of Philippians in this ongoing exposition fashion. Now, Greg Herrick is a name I've referred to in the past. Greg is a, a, a professor, a teacher, a disciple maker, church planner, lives in Canada. And we've talked about Bible.org before. Bible.org, you need to bookmark it and visit there from time to time. But Herrick has some great information on Philippians. And one of the things he did in his notes was what I want to show you. And so I want to give proper attribution to him. But it's a very helpful way of seeing the text. Now, this is a little different translation that we're going to look at, but I want you to see the structure and Greg organize it in a very simple way. So these four verses that we'll read in a moment, let me show you what I want you to look at first. So the first one is a therefore, and that connective tissue in Paul is always important. What's the therefore, therefore, right? But he's going to give these fourfold encouragements before he gives us some instruction. And so the way Herrick organized it, it's just super simple. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection or mercy. So we've got these fourfold conditional clauses and then they go to a command, make my joy complete. And then he took a preposition by, it's not in every, it's not in your Bible this way, it's just a way of seeing it, by being like-minded, by having the same love, by being one in spirit, by having one purpose, by doing nothing according to selfish ambition, by regarding one another as more important than yourselves, and by being concerned about the interests of others. So just to see this little framework here. So we've got these fourfold encouragements, admonitions, but this make my joy complete. Now two things before we look in the text. They're, not to get too deep in the weeds, but in New Testament Greek, just like in language, there are conditional clauses, if then. If we do this, then that will happen. Sometimes the conditional clause is a little different than an if-then. It's more since or because, causal. So not just if these things happen, possibility, potential, then, but more of a declaration. Since these are true, because these are true. And if we can go back one frame, please, and look at that first set of slides, you'll see if any encouragement, we could read it since 
there's encouragement or because there's comfort, because there's fellowship, because of the joy of affection. Then we move to this imperative command and it's make my joy complete. And he says complete my joy in his version. That's an imperative verb. It's the only imperative verb in this very long sentence, chapter 2, verses 1 to 4 is one sentence. And that's the verb that stands out. That's the verb with the red flag that waves. It says, pay attention. This is the command. Make my joy complete. So these four conditions lead to make my joy complete by being of the same mind as he's going to continue. So I want to show you this because to understand the structure, the passage seems simple when you first read it, but there's some heavy theology and very clear practical application from these four verses we're going to look at. This is going to introduce perhaps the most important chapter in the little book of Philippians, but you need to see those two things. So now let me read it in the New American Standard and you can pay attention with that structure in mind. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 4 of the letter of Paul to the Philippians. Therefore, if or since there is encouragement in Christ, if or since because there is consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete. By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, in, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. If you take notes in your Bible, if you write in the margin, I would encourage you to underline, make my joy complete, because that's the imperative function of what he's saying. That's, that's the, this is what you need to do. Make my joy complete. We'll talk about that more. Verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interests, personal interest, but also for the interests of others. Now this chapter is a supreme chapter in the work of Christ, His humility, His life, death, burial, and resurrection. And John Walbert writes, introducing this whole section of chapter 2, a very important paragraph I want to read you. While this chapter is therefore primarily exhortation and inspiration, it also contains the greatest statement theologically of what Christ did when he became man, died, and rose again. I could not agree more. The greatest statement theologically of what Christ did when he became man, died, and rose again. And you're going to hear a word in the weeks to come called kenosis. The empty, he emptied himself of glory and came to heaven. It's a huge topic. It's fascinating. But Walvert is giving an introduction to this whole chapter saying, pay attention. This is some powerful, meaty, important theology about who this Jesus is. And it helps you and me reframe and recalibrate our life into who we are in Christ and how we identify with this. He continues, uh, affirming his while affirming his humiliation and death, it presents him also as the Son of God, before whom every knee shall bow. In many respects, chapter 2 is the high point of the epistle. So we'll see this beginning of the day and in the weeks to come on this very important section. The passage breaks neatly into two points. The first is spiritual unity with others. And again, this is talking about the family of God. This is talking about Christians. This is not talking about how we interact with the world or the culture or engaging the culture or so forth. This is in-house, we might say, 
addressed to believers. Because of Christ's incredible, all-encompassing ministry, we need to live a certain way, and that way is to have spiritual unity with other believers in Jesus Christ. And we have those fourfold things we just saw, and we'll look at them in some detail. The first one is this appeal to unity, encouragement in Christ. Because you're a new creation, if you've trusted that Christ lived, that he died, that he was buried, that he came back from the dead, and any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone for their salvation, you have been given forgiveness of sins, you've been welcomed into the family of God, you've trusted Christ, he has given you eternal life. It's a remarkable transaction, the most incredible transaction on the planet. It's not what you do, it's what he's done. You and I are acknowledging by faith what he has done. So that's being part of the family of God. Paul begins this encouragement in Christ with, do you really understand who you are in Christ? Have you stopped to think about who you are, not just before you were saved, but now that you're in Christ, your life should be completely different. You're a new creation. You're born again. You were bought with a price. So there's a transformation in these two Greek words that we overlook, but to encourage someone in Christ. And that heads the list of these four things. Secondly, consolation of love. Now, when I read the word consolation, I think of a consolation prize, right? You're an also ran. You get a participation ribbon. Uh, when I played sports back when men were men and women were women and we knew the difference, um, you got a trophy for the most improved player. You got a trophy for the, 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 the most valuable player. You, got what, you didn't get participation trophies or ribbons. I'm sorry. I may offend you, but that's how it was. That's how I grew up. And today, we can't do that. Everybody has to get the same thing. God help us. Life doesn't work this way. Hello, McFly. Life doesn't work this way. People who excel in school are going to do better in this. People who have engineering minds are going to do better with math and science. People that have better relational skills are going to, I mean, it's, it, don't let the world teach you. Thank you very much. So this is part of life. Now, so consolation here doesn't mean that at all. Consolation means to speak to someone in a friendly, reassuring way. The consolation of love is not second prize also ran. It's you speak to someone reassuringly in a friendly and kind way. Stop and think about the practical ramifications of this. It, your encouragement is in Christ, and then the next thing he says, console others in a loving way. Speak to them reassuringly. Speak to them kindly. The power of this is overwhelming and we may have experienced it, maybe not, but we sure miss opportunities to experience and help other people in the Christian life. Uh, when I was in Chicago, we were, lived there for four years, and I happened to be with the Moody Bible Institute for a period of time. And there was this pastor named uh, Pastor Don Cole. He'd spent 30 years in Angola, Africa. No missions organization had ever gone to this area. And he spent 30 years basically by himself. He retired due to health and aging, came back to the Wheaton area. Moody convinced him to have a radio program, and it was uh, Pastor Cole at night. Some of you, if you've listened to Moody, remember hearing Don Cole at night. Call, people would call in and say things to him and ask him crazy questions. And he was so kind. And um, he was he's 80 year old, 80 years old, and he, he, uh, he and I had a good friendship. He was very encouraging to me. His wife had back issues, so he would often say, you're like Naomi, you got a back out of whack. 
and that humor. And so we became friends, and we'd be in all these meetings and functions, and he would come once in a while, and he'd come over to me, and very quietly he'd come up, and he'd say hello or whatever, and then he'd lean over and goes, Michael, don't be discouraged. Discouragement never accomplished anything. I still remember it. Now, A, he could read me, which was very uh, disturbing. He could tell when I was frustrated and whatever. And he said, Michael, don't be discouraged. Discouragement never accomplished anything. And then he would say, teach the Bible. You're a Bible teacher. Teach the Bible. That's what you need to do, Michael. Do you think that meant something to me? I'm still telling the story. I was with a gentleman this week who has got some challenges. And I told him that story because he's very discouraged. And I said to his name, discouragement never accomplishes anything. Has anyone looked at you when you've been through trials and tribulations and challenges and a divorce and whatever, and, and they listen to you and they say things like, Christ loves you. Do, do you understand that Jesus Christ loves you and all your sin and all your complexity and all your problems and all your hangups and all the stuff you do that no one else knows? He loves you. And he cares about you. And you can't surprise him or make him mad in the sense of we think about making God angry. That's nonsense. And Christ loves you. And he cares about you. And I believe in you. And I know this stinks right now. But in God's great kindness, you stay faithful. And over time, You'll be okay. You'll get there. It may not be the outcome you wanted, but he'll sustain you. He'll carry you. And when somebody's looking you in the eyes, especially someone who you respect and telling you these things, you pay attention. And it feeds you when someone says an encouraging word, when they speak friendly and reassuring to you in your situation. Encouragement in Christ, consolation of love, fellowship of the Spirit. In chapter 1, verse 5, and chapter 1, verse 7, we talked about the word participation, which comes from the Greek word koinonia. We all heard the word koinonia groups or whatever, and um, it kind of falls in and out of favor. I, I tried to express and explain at that point that it's not just fellowship like we think of that term loosely used in most Christian culture. It's an alliance. It's a relationship. If the police union, they understand one another. If you're a musician and you happen to be in some kind of union, you get each other. If you're a healthcare worker in a certain niche, you understand. If you went to University of Tennessee and you're a Vol, I'm sorry, if you're a Vol, you're an alum forever. You're a Vol. If, you're, if you bleed crimson red, whatever, roll tide, God bless you. When you go to Stephen F. Austin State University, the lumberjacks, eh, you know, it's not too much to be proud about. But anyway, um, you have this association. You get each other. Paul is telling you and me the fellowship of the Spirit, this alliance with the Spirit of Christ is more significant, more important, more powerful than any human association. But isn't it nice if, if you're in your profession and you go somewhere and everybody gets it? Yeah, we get it. We understand each other. Now, that doesn't mean we're all the same. Goodness knows. We have different personalities and opinions. But we have this level ground how much more in the body of Christ? 
that when you and I walk into this, quote, fellowship, a local church, a small group, there is a loyalty there that transcends SEC, a loyalty that connects each other. Um, when I was in, uh, when we lived, Cindy and I lived in D.C. for a dozen years or so and uh, had a first-term uh, congressman, we became friends and you do the whole D.C. thing, so you go to the, the, the White House mess, or you go to the Senate dining room, and it's, you, know, it's, you do all this fun stuff. It's eat, eat the Navy bean soup, whatever. And so I, I went to meet him on Capitol Hill, and we went to lunch, and uh, I asked him, so what's it like? I mean, you're in Congress now. And he told me about his three or four times he ran and, and lost, and when he finally got in, and I said, well, what's, it, what's the experience been so far? Because they, they give you a lot of orientation and so forth. He goes, Michael, it's like high school. What do you mean? He goes, well, you're a freshman. You're a fish. You're an idiot. You walk in, you know who the seniors are. You know who the jocks are. You know who the, the most handsome man and woman are. You know who the brains are. Remember in high school, you always had that one kid you had to love-hate? They were really, really smart, but nobody really liked them other than, you know, help them with your homework kind of person. You know that person. They're your doctor today. Uh, or you have the athlete who's, I mean, they got it all together, but maybe they're not inclined to the books. And, you know, so he said, it's like high school. And it's appropriate. They call it the freshman class. If you've not ever been to an academy, if you have the opportunity, Go to the Air Force Academy or to Carlisle, Pennsylvania, to West Point. Whenever you get an opportunity, go. If you get a chance to go to Annapolis and go to the Naval Academy and watch them feed 4,400 uh, students, it is a machine. Anyone, anyone Naval grad here? Academy grad? So you know what I'm talking about. 4,400 students line up on all four banks of the quad. I mean, there's not a hair out of alignment, and they march in. And each table has two upperclassmen, two basically junior sophomores, and plebes. And the plebes are dogs. Your first year there, you wear these white kind of baggy things that you wear all day long, kind of utilitarian. And they serve all the upperclassmen. They don't get to sit down or take a bite of food until the senior at the table tells them so. They call it the dog year. It's hazing on steroids like you would not believe. And it's all part of the control. Now, when you're that freshman and you're just being abused and treated terribly and harassed, and the moment you sit down and take a bite, they bark at you to give them more milk or whatever. It's very interesting. Uh, but you know what happens when that plea becomes a senior? They do the very same thing to that plebe that was done to them, right? Do you think, they call them ring knockers if you're an academy grad. I, went, I was Naval Academy. I was Air Force Academy. I was West Point. There is an alliance there. Now, that said, they get things. They, but as soon as they meet and they talk about what class they were in or where they were stationed, they understand the fellowship that they have there. That's an alliance. Forget the coffee and donuts fellowship time nonsense. This is a relational network. How much more the Christian life? When you trusted Jesus Christ, the moment you trusted him, you were indwelt with the person of the Holy Spirit. He is your permanent roommate. He will never leave you. He is the hound of heaven whose business is to transform you and me more and more into the image of Christ, less and less from our sinful self. And that fraternity, that sorority, that alliance outshines anything on the planet. And it's called the body of Christ. 
Churches are messed up. Churches are full of a whole bunch of sinners. Y'all are a whole bunch of big sinners. So am I. And we're just a bunch of sinners. But we have the Spirit of God indwelling you and me, and that presence is transforming us. If there's any or sense encouragement in Christ, since there's consolation love, poor love, speak good, refreshing, friendly, reassuring words. Because you're in fellowship with God's Spirit, you're part of this nuclear family. It's very different. And finally, affection and compassion. Again, we've talked about this before. First century Greek, the heart is often figured as the center of man. The Semitic was a little different. They were more breath, nephish, soul was more in this area. But the Greek, the, the visceral, the word really best translated would be guts. Affection is your guts. It's the visceral part. Why? Because if you get anxious or stressed or afraid, you likely feel it right here. You get knot in your stomach, or you're anxious, or turn, or you can't eat. I love all these ads about gut health. You, you know there's things called prebiotics now? Not just probiotics, there's prebiotics. And you can't keep up with this stuff. I mean, I'm sure some, some of you probably sell this stuff. Good for you. God bless you. What a great illustration. We're obsessed with our gut. We're obsessed with our health and how we feel this passage says in the Greek New Testament that your visceral, your affection and compassion, compassion is concerned for somebody else. You know the expression gut punched. I feel like I was gut punched. Something traumatic happens to you or me and the wind is knocked out of us and the world stops and we don't know how we're going to make it. It comes in a firing or a lawsuit or divorce or a child that breaks our heart or fill in the blank the traumas that will come into our life your gut punch the body of christ is to be encouraging in christ there is to be a consolation a reassuring comment about the love of christ to people a fellowship unique in all the world with the holy spirit who indwells you in me and we show affection and compassion to one another because we're the body of Christ, we need to encourage each other. Now, when you read this, like any injunction or imperative in the Scripture, God wouldn't tell us to do this if we were already doing it. We need to be reminded. This is not a work of the flesh. This is so contra to the way the Western mind works. This is not doing better, being more disciplined. This is a work of the Spirit. And this is why he begins with this fourfold exhortation. Um, if it was discipline or willpower, all the people that were self-disciplined and had great willpower would be doing fine. But it's a lot more than that. Let me show you another way of looking at this causally on the screen. So because of these realities of God's grace in your life, since we know and experience encouragement in Christ... Since we are consoled by love, we speak love to others, we reassure them. Since we have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, and since we can show affection and compassion, concern for others who are hurt. That's the foundation he's laying, and now we go to the second point, the imperative command, make my joy complete. Don't just think of Paul telling the Philippians this, Think of Jesus Christ telling Paul to write this down. These are words from Jesus' lips. 
He says, you need to make my joy complete. Now, we've got to talk through this a little bit because our Western brain is going to go the wrong direction. Uh, make me glad would not be a poor translation, but it's not based on performance. It's not like showing off or being a do-gooder and God gives us more attention. Um, envision yourself on a trip with your favorite people in life. Maybe it's friends, maybe it's siblings, maybe it's your family, maybe it's college girlfriends or whatever, and you're in your favorite spot, you're on a veranda, on a beach, wherever you want to be, and you've had a fabulous meal, and you're watching the sunset wherever you might be, and you're laughing, and your belly's full, and your heart is overflowing, and you are joyful. You want to be there right now. You can think of the people who are there. Um, I've significantly trimmed my involvement with social media, which I'll tell you a little bit more about in a moment. But when I do look at it, my, my daughter has a thing where she shows us our grandchildren. So, of course, we have to look at that every morning and see, did you see what Hannah posted? We have to look through it and see our perfect grandchildren. And uh, that's fun. But if I do flip through, which I'm going to tell more later, um, what I love seeing are these pictures. And tragically, or I mean, not tragically, interestingly, it's always women. And it's their college group from Auburn or their college group from Tennessee or their college group, whatever. And they're married and older now. And more than likely, they got some problem marriages. They got a divorce in the group, whatever. But those girls knew each other in college and they followed Christ and they're still staying together and they're friends and they're on the beach somewhere. And it just makes me smile. Because for that weekend... Or those few days, they're with people that get it, and they get one another, and they don't judge each other, and they encourage each other, and they're always there for you. Those friendships are rich and deep. That's the body of Christ. That's what your community, that's what your fellowship can be like. Fellowship is not coffee and a donut in time before or after church. It's not a hall it's a community that we have because of what Christ has done. And he says, make my joy complete. When uh, Cindy and I are doing things with our family, the two older girls are married and, and have phenomenal husbands. They're incredible gifts to our family system, and I hope we are to them. And we have the grandkids. And it, it doesn't matter if we're at our house or on a trip, a vacation, or just a family night or a game night or whatever it might be. And everybody's full, everybody's fat and happy, and we're sitting around, the kitchen's been kind of, you know, sort of semi-cleaned up, and they're telling stories about each other, and they're telling remember-when stories, and a lot of smack talk, and if we're playing a game, it's hysterical. And I look over at my wife, and she is full. Her heart is overflowing. She doesn't need more of anything right now. She's just relishing that moment. Now, some of us had difficult families. I'm not unaware of that. Some of us have difficult pasts. But there's still people that when you're with them, that's where you are. Guys, this should be part of the Christian life for you. You need to be plugged into that type of group. And we're going to find out in a minute that these people aren't always easy. Sometimes there's that person in the family. I'm that person in my system, frankly. <laughs> same mind, same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Verses 3 and 4. 
this works out then. This command, make my joy complete, works out in verses 3 and 4. Spiritual care for others. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Fascinating play on words. Empty conceit. Conceited people are hollow. They're empty. It's a void. But with humility in mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That slide has the word merely, not in italics. Again, sidebar, for those of you that use the New American Standard Bible, it'll be in italics in your Bible. That's a word that's suppleted, the word the translators put in there to smooth the reading, okay? Because it's a little truncated without it. It's a good word here because the grammar put together does indicate it's not, otherwise it would say, you know, you can't ever think of yourself, which is impossible, right? Well, let's look at what it means to spiritually care for others. Two simple points. You regard others as more important and you look out for others' interests. Uh, Turning from selfishness to others, turning from conceit to care, turning from personal pride to humility. This is not a work of the flesh. This is understanding those fourfold motivations before he says, make God joyful. And even as I say that, I twinge because I'm not saying your performance or mine is going to make God happy. I'm saying when God sees this work, it brings him joy. When Paul saw it work for the Philippians, it made him happy to see his children Christ talks about no greater love than when a child, for a parent, than when a child walks in the way. And there is no greater love on earth. Now, this is a striking difference from an all-about-me world. Um, we've changed as a culture the last few decades where counseling is almost an expectation for people. And I'm, I'm not saying counseling is good, bad, or indifferent. Cindy and I went to counseling when we were married about nine or ten years, and it was extraordinarily helpful. But counseling isn't the solution to everything. And three and four and five years of counseling raises all kinds of questions in my head, but that's just me. That's why you don't come to me as a counselor. Depressed? Don't be. Next question, right? So anyway, um, that other people are wired far better than that than I am. But when, when, you, when you see this, this passage about others being more important, it's so contrary to how our world thinks. Think about the term, I'm a social media influencer. It's, it's, it just grates me at some level. I'm not saying it's all bad. Don't hear me. Don't, don't run to that conclusion. But I'm promoting myself. I'm promoting what I'm about. It's I, me, my. And we need a big cautionary yellow, maybe a red flag that says, whoa, time out. You were bought with a price. You don't belong to yourself. You're not your own. You need to live differently than that. And part depending on the situation. But when that's sort of a trump card, get it as you all free, that's disingenuous. I'm not going to engage in something that might be a little tumultuous. I'm not going to engage in something that might mean a fight. I, I, you know, I, I got to cover my own. You know, it's all about me. That's what we're saying. Look out for the interests of others. Uh, striking path. This is so practical. You could likely solve most of your discouragement and sadness and depression in life if you would get out of yourself and do something for somebody else. I'm not saying that's an easy step, 
Sometimes we're hurt and we're sad and for good reason. If you've been through trauma, I'm not trying to brush it under the rug. If you've been through a divorce or a death or cancer, those things take time. And don't listen to trite Christians that say stupid things. God love them. Sometimes, you know, those people need to be hurt a little bit. And their perspective in life will change. But you want to walk with people that know a little bit about what they're doing. This passage about putting others more important is so simple and practical. Not hard. We were early married. We had our first baby girl. We lived in Dallas, Texas in a little tiny duplex. And uh, Cindy was getting adjusted to having a little baby girl. And she was having some struggles and challenges. And I, you, you guys are yet to be fathers. Don't ever tell your wife anything about breastfeeding. <laughs> that, if there's a fourth rail in life, that's it. Don't, just don't even bring it up, you know. And so... Um, there was a woman in our church that we both knew and loved. She's a few years older than Cindy and me. And I think pretty much against Cindy's knowledge, I called this woman. And I said, would you come help my wife? Sure. She shows up with grocery bags full of stuff. And she says, Michael, leave. Fine. I left. Kathleen spent some time with Cindy with this, that, food, diet, and this, that, and that. that. I came home. My wife was the happiest person. Because someone else who had a fellowship with what she identified with could help her down the road. And before long, no problem whatsoever. No problem whatsoever. She figured it out. Look out for the interests of others. It's really not that hard. And most people, not all, I'm not a psychologist, certainly not a medical doctor, but I can tell you, getting out of self helps in just a pragmatic way let's think about some lessons number one you need to know who you are and know whose you are this is a foundational piece of theology that unfortunately i can't give you a story to make you shed a tear or remember this this is a propositional truth christians do not know who they are and they don't know whose they are when you walked out, prayed the prayer, whatever you did, put your trust in Christ and Christ alone, you were no longer the same person you were. You're a new creation. I had a friend of mine that used to use this beautiful graphic, and his name was, um, I think it was Larry Rice, and then it became William Lawrence. And he was adopted, and his parents gave him a new name. And he showed this Remember, it was Da Vinci with the man, Adam. He showed a wheel like that, and he said, I used to be William Lawrence, Larry Lawrence, whatever it was, and now I'm Bill Lawrence. I'm a new person. I love that picture. When you trusted Christ, you're a new creation. You're not who you used to be. Most Christians don't understand this. They live with the messages and the information from your parenting, good or bad, the programming you got, good or bad, the training you got, good or bad. We've cobbled together this idea of who we're supposed to be, and social media does not help one iota. And so we're comparing ourselves to these false realities, and we'll never be good enough, handsome enough, rich enough, thin enough, tall enough, whatever you want to be. And the construct for the Christian is, you're a ball of the price. You 
have more value being in Christ than the most, the wealthiest superstar on the planet. No matter how many million followers they might have or a blue certified check mark by your name, God bless your heart, it does not impress the master. You belong to a king. And he loves you. And some of you don't believe that. You think there's something you've done or something you did or something keeping you from that love. And if I can pour consolation on you, he loves you. Completely, perfectly, supernaturally, far beyond the greatest human love we'll ever experience as men and women. Whose you are, you're his now. You belong to a king. You and I were throwaway children. We were on the end of the orphan train and nobody wanted us. And he did not just adopt us. He grafted us into the family of God and made us heirs to an eternal kingdom, eternal kingdom that will last forever. I use this illustration too many times, but I find it helpful. If you can envision God as an immeasurable sphere, immeasurable sphere, in the middle is a one-inch piece of string that marks out the beginning of time when God created the heavens and the earth and the end of time when he'll return and the eschaton and the eternal kingdom begins. One inch against an immeasurable sphere. Somewhere on that one inch, Galatians 4.4, 4, at the proper time God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, born under the law. He interrupted that time space and Christ comes to the planet. And after that, which we all are part of that, after that we now live, but it's a little tiny one inch blip on this middle of this immeasurable sphere every illustration fails at multiple levels it's just an illustration but it's immeasurable and we think we're something on that little piece of string and God's so far beyond our description imagination the eternality his eternal purposes his administrative plans for the kingdom of God and you're an heir to that and you and I are concerned about the next post on social media or the next job or the next doctor's appointment. And we, we're living on that little piece of one-inch string as if that's all that matters. Who you are and whose you are. Secondly, selfishness is in opposition to unity. You can't be selfish and create unity. It's not, that's not a hard one to figure out. Um... I have a friend, Ralph Weitz. He's um, 10 years my senior. We knew each other in Virginia and D.C., and he's a great friend. Um, he was a product of a single family, and if you're 72 years of age and your mother, your father walked out on the family, do the math. That was pretty uncommon in those days. And Ralph was an extraordinary son, and he took care of his mother until she died. And a simple guy. And Ralph had this funny way about him, still does. For example, he still collects aluminum cans and scrap metal. And he goes and sells them. And I go, Ralph, by the time you pick up all that junk, spend the gas, and take it and cash it in, I mean, it's a waste of time and money. And he just laughs at me. 
And he's, oh, by the way, talking to everybody about Christ all along the way, the guy at the recycling plant. I'm learning more about this guy than I know about my neighbor. And Ralph's telling me the whole play-by-play. Katie, his wife, just rolls her eyes. And he takes the cash, and he puts it in an envelope, and puts it in his sock drawer, and he laughs. He thinks that's so funny. I'm socking it away. (laughs) That's like worse than a dad joke, right? And he thinks he's so funny. And he uses that money to give to people that are homeless or need something. From the day I knew him, he had this old beat-up truck, and he would go. He found out where he could buy mulch, hardwood bark mulch for next to nothing. And he'd fill up the back of his truck, and he'd go to these widows' homes or maybe a single mom, and he would mulch their beds. On a scale of a thousand things to do in life, I don't know that I'd ever come up with going mulching somebody's yard. <laughs> He's been doing it since I know him. And he loves doing it. And Ralph's got issues like all of us. We're getting older, things happen, our health changes. But he, and he says to me when we talk on the phone almost every week, he goes, Michael, there's never a lack of ministry. There's never a lack of ministry. We can always do something for somebody else. You know what that does to me? Do you see the world that way? It ain't about just you. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry to say it. It's not just about you. This passage couldn't be clearer. Regard others as more important than yourself. Look out for the interests of others. Finally, others first nurtures humility and unity. When we get out of ourselves just a little bit and help somebody else. Now, the family's a funky thing, is it not? There's always that one. I was in uh, high school. I worked two jobs in high school. We had this work program. Y'all know what DE is, DECA, DE? Well, there was one called ICT or VICA, Industrial Cooperative Training or Vocational Industrial Cooperative Training. And I'd gone to parochial schools up until 10th grade, and consequently, public school was completely boring, and I made straight A's without doing any homework. So I moved over to this work program. So I went to school in the morning. I think I got off at 11 and I drove to a photo lab where I worked at a photo lab. And then from 6 to 10, I worked at a backpacking mountaineering kayaking store. And I did this for my last 10th grade and 11 and 12. And so I worked more than I went to school. I loved it. I loved it. I didn't have any money, so you had to work to get money in those days. And so uh, I had, but going to the photo lab was a kid in the candy store. I had worked in a dark room that my dad had helped me build in eighth grade, and I would develop film, uh, film and contact prints and enlarge and so forth and so on. And I was better behind the cam- uh, behind, in the dark room than behind the camera. So anyway, I got this job at this lab, a small lab, 20-some people. And I'm one of these guys that I'll roll up my sleeves and learn anything. So I'm mixing chemistry, I'm cleaning floors, I'm fixing printers. Before long, I'm developing film, I'm working on custom printing, which is an art form. It's gone today, it's all done on a computer. And um, the owner loved me, and so we had a great relationship. The manager, however, was, well, there's a word I want to use, but we're Christians, so I'll just say difficult. (laughs) And nobody liked him. He got there early, he ate lunch at his desk, and he went home late. So you couldn't complain about his work ethic. But he was just not a very nice person to get along with or work with. And I remember coming home one weekend and kvetching to my dad in the wisdom of a 16-year-old, 17-year-old boy, 
I knew everything. I said, Dad, man, it'd be a perfect job if it weren't for so-and-so. And my dad, in his inimical way, said, well, Michael, there's always one. Said, yeah, but if, but if he, we got rid of him, and he goes, yeah, they'd replace him. And there'll always be one. Now, that was my father's kind of encouragement. That's why I turned out the way I am. <laughs> That's why I'm so messed up. There's always one. You know, there's always one in a family. In there. At the risk of being offensive, there's always one in a small group. There's always one in every area of life. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, you and I are dwelt with the Spirit of God. And we're to be transformed into something we're not. Not conformed to the world's version, but transformed into something we're not. And we will have problem people along the way. I have been that problem in people's lives. And more than likely you have too. Maybe you didn't even know it. And when we see people that are struggling, most of the time it's hurt. Most of the time it's loss, injustice, unfairness, disappointment in life. Things didn't work out the way it was supposed to. And they don't know how to process and handle it. And so you need a Kathleen that will come along with four bags of groceries metaphorically and say, let me help you. Let me help you. With this man this week, very discouraged. Lots of reasons to be. I told him the Don Cole story. Don't be disappointed. Disappointment never accomplished anything. What are you going to do for somebody else? It's not a magic wand that's going to cure all ills, but this text tells you and me that it gives joy to God's heart when we put others before us sometimes. This is not self-hatred, by the way. This does not say never, ever, ever be concerned about yourself. That's why the word merely is important in that text, even though it's added. Don't merely look out for yourself, because you have to take care of yourself. But the self-care language and the love-first language, and I mean my passion, has eclipsed, I'm arguing, serving other people, being selfless, being humble, it ain't all about me. It ain't all about you. Because a family loves one another. Even though you have that one. Even though you might have more than one. Even though in my case, I was the one in my family system. Others first will nurture humility and unity. You and I are in a position knowing Jesus Christ, to change the world. And it begins in our own home, our own family, our own context. How we love and treat and encourage one another is seen by others. Christ told his disciples, they will know you by your love. As I said a couple weeks ago, there's probably somebody you need to share Christ with. There's probably five or six or ten people in your head right now that you need to be the one who encourages. You need to take interest in them to reach out. How are you doing? <laughs> We've got great examples over here. The Presley's small group with the food drive. Nimmons with FCA. Some of you doing things behind the scenes we don't even know about. That's the family of God. That's what the church is supposed to be.